I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to a special edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. I saw a great photograph the other day. Liverpool had returned to training at Melwood. Outside, a father had his son on his shoulders so that he could see over the wall. The boy had a ball in his hand and a bobble hat on his head. I couldn't see his face, but I bet it had a look of wonder. He was watching his heroes, you see. We all have them for a different range of reasons. We ask you, the listeners, for yours. They will take us across clubs, generations and national boundaries. We're going to start with a boy from Brazil, suggested by Stu Horsfield. He comes up with Zico. As he says, he was the first name I used in the playground and he played the game exactly how I wanted to see it played. Do you get that, Aid? <laughs> oh, yes, I do. Yeah, I mean, Zico was one of the the, the players that I, you know, idolised, I guess, to some extent as, as a kid, especially the 82 World Cup, the first World Cup, first major tournament I can... I can remember, and he was unbelievable. He really was in a stunning Brazil team. He was just a joy to watch, just so quick, such a wonderful dribbler, nippy, lovely passes, could score great goals. Mesmeric from free kicks, Zico. I mean, he has to be, has to be classified in the in the top five free kick takers of all time. He, he was that that special and yeah he he was he was and what i think made it so special at that point was that he was new major tournaments would throw up players that we'd never seen before as kids because he played for flamingo at the time and flamingo believe it or not wasn't on terrestrial tv here in this country <laughs> and uh we didn't get to see you know his club football at all but you, you'd heard the name and then you saw, wow, okay, this is what this, this play is all about. Football wasn't on television as much in the 80s. And when it was, you, you tended to, to really watch with, with heightened interest. And Zico was, was the best player, certainly in 82, probably for a few years after that as well. Yeah, I think if you, you, know, you, you look, just the stats actually shout at you. I don't think any other player scored as many goals at the American R. 333 and 435 games there. Amazing. And he was a bit of a Renaissance man in many ways. He was Brazil's first sports minister. And there's almost a bit of what if about him, isn't there, Seb? He applied, well, he certainly lobbied for the the Newcastle job when uh, Kevin Keegan departed in 2008. There was a report at one stage that he was actually offered the role as assistant to Alex Ferguson at Manchester United, (laughs) which would have been something else, wouldn't it? What are your thoughts on him? I mean, he had this really strange second act in his career. I mean, his management... I'm I'm just looking down a list of the teams that he managed now. Kashima Antlers, the national team of Japan, Fenerbahce, CSK Moscow, Olympiacos, Iraq's national team, Al Garafa in the UAE. FC Goa in India. It's really interesting because on the one hand, you have this 
he's almost the ideal of the playmaker, isn't he? I think Zico is only about five foot eight. You know, amazingly skillful player, good pass to the ball, really, you know, wonderful creative mind. And yeah, and actually, you know, what, what one thing we've missed out of here is um, I remember, I don't know if this is true or whether I dreamt or imagined it, but I'm pretty sure he played for Brazil's beach football team at some point in the 90s. Um, so he's kind of covered so many bases and, and worked in so many different parts of the world that kind of like that Renaissance man description of perfect might be this sort of cosmopolitan character. And it's just, uh, yeah, it, it's fascinating. I, I, you know what? I'd love to have seen the culture clash of him firstly managing Newcastle, whether the Mike Ashley aspect of that might have crushed any spirit that he may have been able to bring, I don't know. But certainly as a, as a kind of... As a, as a number two in place of Carlos Kiros at United, that would have been very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, and, and in the playground, by the way, Zico was the player you wanted yeah. to be. Yeah, I'll be Zico. Obviously, he definitely was that guy in that era. Yeah, you talked about contrast there, Seb. Will Harris, his hero, Stuart Pearce. Now, as he explains, I started out playing at left back and desperately wanted to be like him. He puts in brackets, spoiler, I wasn't. I admired his determination, his passion, his free kicks. I found his moment of catharsis when he put the pen away in Euro 96 moving. Probably not alone in that. I suppose Stuart tells you, one, you know, fabled, you know, the electrician who made it as an England international. You know, football's a, a game for all shapes and sizes and different people, isn't it? Yeah, also the electrician he used to advertise in Forest's match day programme until quite late into his professional <laughs> career for his, for, his, for his services. Hey, listen, Stuart Pearce, I, I think still to this day, when English football looks in the mirror, Stuart Pearce is what, what it sees, what it wants to see. So Adrian's lucky enough to have played the game, but all of us are lucky enough to spend a lot of time around it and around the people who play it. And one of my favourite memories is I, I was covering a, a Tottenham West Ham League Cup game at Wembley. I was waiting for the, you know, you know, the sort of the queue for lifts that always develops outside the press or mm-hmm. press room there. And um, I was coming out for my coffee and it was just me and Stuart Pierce, And he just turned to me and go, oh, that was a that was a strange game, wasn't it? Something to that effect. And I just thought, that's cool. Stuart Pierce is talking to me. That's really cool. <laughs> and I kind of I, th- I think like it's interesting that it stood out to me because I you have those little moments all the time. You know, not not I'm not trying to be boastful. I just mean that that becomes kind of normal in our profession. And I just remember thinking, God, that's. For a character like that, you know, and the the ninety six moment is I mean, it's timeless, isn't it? And I, I, I you know, it will make the heads on the back of my neck stand up for a long time. But I don't think it's just about scoring that penalty and that shooter. I think it's about who Stuart Pierce was and and the way he played the game. And and I, I can completely understand why he would become a role model and a hero for somebody because there was a sort of there was no frills. He's almost like a kind of today, he's like an antidote to what a lot of the parts of the game have become. I think that's kind of that's why he has his place in history, and it's uh, yeah, I mean, just just a, a great character and a really nice, really nice person, actually. You know, that's that's very really true, nice and, and also he's, he's really relatable. Yeah. You know, to footballers, is it a you know, friend of mine, Kenny Jacket at, at, at Portsmouth, brings Stuart in for training periodically because he sees how players relate to someone of Pierce's character and achievements. I'm sure you must identify with that, mustn't you, Ed? Definitely, yeah, definitely. He's, he's the man on the street that made it. He's no ears or graces, no no ego. He's just determined, aggressive character who, yeah, you know, had a hammer left left foot, didn't he? But but also it, it, he is proof that you don't need to be obsessed by football because he's in, he's got such interest. I've spoken to him a few times, worked together at Talksport and 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 often our conversations would 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 not be around about football it'd be about other stuff particularly music he's so into his music and the last time I spoke to him he he'd, he'd bought a drum kit and he was learning to play the drums he was so I bet so he excited those drums. oh absolutely he might, like I, I said I hope you've got that silencer thing that the, I think they were ele- electronic ones I hope you got that silencer thing that, where, where your neighbors won't you know where other People in other rooms won't hear it. I think he did. But he was so into it and he's so into his music. He goes to gigs, doesn't he, all of the time, even even at this, uh, this sort of age, this, this time in his life, he loves a gig. So, yeah, he's just a normal bloke. And I think that's why he's he's, he's a hero. And, and also because he, 
he, he played with such passion and, and for the badge. It, yeah, you, you knew if you were a Forest fan or, or any of the teams that he played for, you knew you were going to get 100, 110% out of uh, Psycho. Do you remember the tournoi um, in 97 before the World Cup? And England played, England played a couple of games. I think they played against Italy in their first game. And it was sort of, you remember the tone of that tournament? It was kind of a friendly, it was like preparation. It's like what the Confederations Cup is today, basically, for anyone who doesn't remember. I forget who the Italian player was. Was that the Roberto Carlos goal? Exactly. Mm. It was, it was, yeah. that, it was yeah. in, that, in that tournament. England beat Italy 2-0. I think Ian Wright and Paul Scholl scored. They beat France in the final. But in the game against Italy, I forget who it was, some Italian player went down the right side and tried to go past Stuart Pearce, and it absolutely battered him. I mean, just kicked, kicked him into the stand, basically, and just took the ball, man and ball, like proper old-school tackle. And it kind of summarises sort of what he was. I loved the way he played the game. It's just wholeheartedly, one speed. If there's a game of football to be played and a tackle to be won, there's none of, you know, there's only one way to do that. And I think there's an awful lot to take from someone like that, especially now. Yeah, if you're talking about a wholehearted player, you know, uh, George Murray's choice probably sums it up. Steven Gerrard, as George says, he's truly unique in terms of what a midfielder can do. For a long time, even as a Liverpool fan, you couldn't help thinking that he could have played for any team in the world and been undisputably considered one of the best of all time. Even in poor Liverpool teams, he shone. That's a pretty good summary, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm a massive Stephen Gerrard fan myself, and and yeah, like homegrown hero. He, I would imagine many many Liverpool fans would uh, would think like George and see him as the the guy they they idolise. You know, I've been there inside Anfield when the the whole stadium's been singing his name, and it's yeah, it puts goosebumps on your neck. It, it, yeah, he was just a, just a brilliant all round player. I, I think he is my favourite actually of of the sort of golden generation of of England talents because he was the one player that that when things weren't going so well he would either provide a moment of inspiration himself or or get others around him going he was he was he was a cajoler as well as someone that that just played for himself the perfect captain actually Stephen Gerrard in my opinion and he had that quality from a very very young age even as a rookie he came into the team and he was fearless and he and he acted like he, he belonged there and that he'd been playing there for years. I recently analysed the, the, one of the games from 03-04 and he was pretty early days in his Liverpool career, Arsenal against Liverpool, and Arsenal won the game 4-2, but Gerrard was outrageously good. He was absolutely sensational that day and it just reminded me how good he'd been for for how long a period quite remarkable and yeah I, I think he just shades just shades Lampard was a better goal scorer Scolzi was a better passer more technical player but in terms of all-round influence Gerard would make yeah he'd make my Premier League all-time 11 he would have to yeah I, I suppose you know to your point I'd you know my Great memory of him is is in that FA Cup final against West Ham, oh, yeah. where basically, yeah. you know, he just he, he just got them the cup. He says, "I'm not leaving here without this thing." Again, that type of player inspires huge loyalty, but also a strange sort of intimacy in a way. Because you go around Liverpool, when you hear people talking about Stephen, you're only talking about one Stephen. You're talking about Stephen Gerrard, aren't you? You are. I mean, I, I feel like I need to recuse myself from this. I never felt anything for Stephen Gerrard. I, I, admire, <laughs> I admire him greatly. I think he's a wonderful player. But maybe this actually makes your point, Mike, in that there is that intimacy of relationship, but to the people connected to the teams with which he's associated. I can't say that I, I, I sort of had any real affection for Frank Lampard or even Paul Scholes. But then that's about the team that I grew up supporting, isn't it? And what those players typically did to that team, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> It's it, it's a strange one. I, I completely understand it. I also know George, and I know I know I know uh, where his affections lie in the Premier League. So I can completely understand that. One one thing though, on the on the cup final that you brought up, Mike, can you imagine if any other Liverpool player had taken on, on that shot with which he equalised? It's like what? How how long is there left in that game? You're 35 yards out. The ball's dropping, and that's your decision. Any other player, if that doesn't go in, they get absolutely crucified for taking that on. It's incredible. It's an amazing, it's an amazing hit. But we we knew Gerald was capable of that. But I think it was kind of, 
it was indicative of the faith he had in his own ability as well. It's a, it's an amazing moment. Yeah, yeah. Daniel Woodrow uh, comes up with another Liverpool midfield player, uh, Jan Mulby. Now, I knew uh, Jan when he was playing. He was a very good night out. I know that. Um, <laughs> Daniel basically, you know, he talks about him. He says, look, he always seemed to have so much time on the ball. He played some killer passes and gave hope to us all less svelte playground footballers in the mid to late <laughs> 80s. He told us we could still fulfil our dreams, although that's probably unfair on him. He says he's an incredible player. Hey, that was probably your era. I thought he was a smashing player. Yeah, very, very good. I don't think an all-time great in terms of Liverpool or, or the Premier League, but he was he was one of the big... Big heavyweight. He, he has to be one of the best heavyweight footballers that we've seen in, in this country, Jan Mulby. Just a yeah, beautiful passer, a scorer of of some very good long long range goals. When 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 Jan Mulby put his weight behind a shot, he didn't want to be in the way of it. Yeah, and uh, I just loved I loved the scousification of Jan Mulby as well. Actually, he obviously is a Dane. But but you would imagine he, he he was brought up in in the city himself, wouldn't you? <laughs> Judged by the way by his accent, quite quite remarkable. Yeah, Mulby. I've, I've got a slight bone to pick with Yam Mulby though, because when I left Southend, what would it have been? Nine uh, two thousand. I was offered a trial match for Kidderminster Harriers, and he was the he was the manager at the time, and they'd just been promoted, literally just been promoted to the to the Football League. And I was quite excited about this. And I went and played a game. I think it was at Tamworth. And it was, we played Tamworth. It was a Kidderminster reserve team, I guess. And we won 7-0. I scored a couple of goals and played well. And it was one of those, you thought, well, I couldn't have done much more here. Where do I sign? (laughs) (laughs) And I found out afterwards that Jan Mulby, who I was told would be there, didn't, didn't turn up. He wasn't there. <laughs> he wasn't there. So, kind of, it was just to waste. You know, there was, I'm assuming the guy that was looking after the team said I was half decent, but but nothing came of it. And and in the end, yeah, I went down into non-league and and started my journalist career actually uh, while playing playing for Stevenage. So maybe I owe him, owe him a favour. I don't know. But yeah, conflicted views on on Yamovi. <laughs> Sliding doors. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> right, then another player, Ian Taylor, suggests Muzzy is it. Yeah, interesting. Of Leicester, of course. You know, criminally, as, as he says, criminally overlooked by England and ended up playing for Turkey in a World Cup semi-final. He could have played for one of the top teams. What do you think, Seb? I don't, I, don't, I don't really agree. I don't really believe that he was criminally underrated by England because if you think about the players in his generation... And you're kind of in the sort of the Paul Ince, David Batty, you know, even I suppose towards the end, Paul Scholes was there as well. No, it's the same age. It's the same age as Scholes. Yeah. Okay. Same age so, as Beckham. So, yeah. And then, so you're into also Lampard and Gerrard and, uh, you yeah, I, I, I don't know about criminally under, overlooked. What I will say is, he's an awfully good player for someone that's kind of never comes up today. And I don't just mean the sense that like that 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 volley he scored against Spurs at Filbert Street. Like he was a good good footballer. Interestingly, he came through at Senrab, the London club, which is which is home to all sorts of London footballers. We were talking about this when we were off air, but there's Ledley King, Hugo Hechiog, Jermaine Defoe, John Terry, Vince Lair, former Palace player, and I think he was uh, Muzzy as it was originally released by Chelsea, or he was he he went on loan to Leicester during their promotion season under Martin O'Neill. And then I think they they made his deal permanent for a couple of hundred thousand when they got promoted. But yeah, good player. And his dad was Turkish Cypriot. So he qualified to play for Turkey and found himself in a World Cup semi-final against Brazil uh, in 2002. So, you know what? He had the high points in his career that he deserved. I don't think he was... I don't think he's a kind of Wilfred Zaha-sized mistake by England. I just think he was really unfortunate with his timing. And perhaps had he been... A little bit earlier or a little bit later, he might have got a, a chance. Actually, like, I mean, you'd, you'd have done well not to be capped by Sven Goran Eriksson um, <laughs> if you were a midfielder back a couple of years later. But yeah, good player, good player. Yeah, you you played with him, did you? Uh, played played against him many times. Yeah, he's my age. Played against him for Sam Rab, who had 
Adi Akinbae also in the same team. Terry Skiverton, who went on to have a you know good career in the lower league. Same for Scott Cannon. They had a decent team. And yeah, but we beat them. Redbridge United. I was only there for a year, but we, we beat them every single time. Don't want was to that talk. The, was that, sorry, was that the West Ham Scott Cannon? <laughs> yeah, of, it is. Um, yeah. Redknapp fame. That, that is the one. Yeah, that is the same one. So, how, yeah, when Harry Redknapp launched that staunch, staunch defence of, of his nephew Frank and referenced Scott Cannon, that is the same same boy. And he played for Leighton Orient. He had a good, he had a decent, decent league career. But yeah, he wasn't in the same league as Frank, unfortunately. Uh, but Muzzy didn't stand out that much at that, at that age, I have to say. I was probably 13, 14 at that time. I played against him when he was in the Chelsea youth team, Arsenal Chelsea. Used to regularly regularly meet, and I remember him, but not. He wasn't a star player. He wasn't, wasn't the guy that you always sort of talked about in the dressing room or or worried about. He was actually one of these players that sort of just drifted through, and he was always good enough to be in the team, but not not the standout guy. And he got a pro contract at Chelsea, but I don't think they ever really saw him as a as a first teamer. And then boom, he gets a, a loan move to a to a top championship club who then get promoted. They want to keep him. He did well and, and his career took off. I mean, he is a great advocate of the, the loan system. And I think one of the, and then he grew. And then we got to see what a good player he was. And sometimes it takes a player feeling at home, feeling wanted, f- feeling on the big stage to, to bring out the best in them. And I think that was him. What I liked about him and what I think the fans loved about him, Ian probably in particular, it was, was that he was a real feisty guy, he was a fighter. And you want, to, you want to have scrappers in the middle of the park, don't you? But then on the ball, he had capability to produce a bit of magic. But quick feet, a great volley. He was a wonderful volleyer. So, so yeah, Muzzy had it, had it all. And he had a great partnership, didn't he, with Lennon, Neil Lennon. And, and the reason I think as well Leicester fans revere Muzzy so much is that he was part of winning teams, cup teams, league cups. I think they won a couple of league cups, runner-up in another, got a promotion, at least one promotion. So, yeah, winner. He was a winner and he had a little bit of everything. Wasn't a Hall of Famer in terms of Premier League, but but definitely a player that could that fans could identify with. And obviously, the Turkish you know Turkish community just idolised idolised Mazi because he was... He was normal as well, just not, yeah, just a normal lad. Mm. Talking of winners, James Pettit's choice, probably actually the epitome of that phrase, Didier Drogba, mainly because of how he shone in the big moments. I suppose that does define a hero, doesn't it, Seb? Oh, yeah, and I hated him. I mean, (laughs) a lot of those big moments came against Tottenham, so I hated him. But uh, you know what what I'll say about Drogba? Great player, not quite as prolific as people remember, but, you know, just an amazing presence, but a better human being sort of dig into kind of the, the work that he's done off the field back in Africa, back in the Ivory Coast. He's a hero in the proper sense, not just in the sporting sense, but as in the societal a societal meaning. But yeah, as a player, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very <laughs> conflicting situation. He went down quite easily, though, didn't he? If we're honest about it, but he could. He, oh, he was a little cheat. He was a big cheat, wasn't he? At times, I wasn't going to say big yeah. cheat, but I... well, he was. I mean, I think we can say that now. Now that he's retired, he, he definitely conned the referee on numerous occasions. But but what he did, he also he was a bully. He bullied centre halves, and he he it scored against te- probably against teams like Arsenal. Because he always scored against Arsenal, I think. I think there was a fear factor around Drogba from from opposition centre halves. That that oh god, we got to play Drogba today. It, this is going to be a nightmare. I think and he, um, often it was. I think he actually gets a little bit of a raw deal with you know his technical ability. I mean, if, okay, so sort of you know you think of him as a sort of a presence as a kind of the the archetypal target man of his era. But some of the goals he scored and some of the, the timing in his finishing sometimes and his his ability to control the ball and bring other players into it, I think he's done a little bit dis- a bit of a disservice by history because he could play. He wasn't a... I, I, would, I wouldn't class him as a kind of target man in the 1990s sense. He was a very gifted technical footballer. But yeah, no, I hated him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why Chelsea fans loved him. Yeah, though, but that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's what I should say. The, yeah. You know, if, if you're a Tottenham fan, Didier Drogba doesn't want you singing his praises. He wants you, you know, presumably to, to remember him as a thorn in your side. And, and he was, absolutely, year after year. 
Yeah. Disco Stew, who I think probably goes under the moniker uh, Stuart Boyle, he comes up with a player who's been described as West Ham's best ever buy. Cost £5,000. Alan Devonshire, as Stu says, so silky and so skillful. I think he was eight caps he won for England. One of those players who had a, a almost like an ethereal quality about him. He looked quite slight, but I thought he was a, a, a very, very good player. Yeah, it was, it was pretty a bit before my time. I, I, I can remember bits bits of him in a in a very good West Ham team. He was he, he just made things tick, didn't he? Very yeah, artistic midfielder. And I've I've since sort of got had more to do with him, I guess, as a non league manager. He's he's a very aggressive, sort of sweary, salt of the earth guy. Um Typical non-league manager, really. If you, I tell you what, anyone that's gone and watched an Alan Devonshire team and stood near the technical area, they would think Alan Devonshire was like a, a pub player. They would think he would have been a pub player that <laughs> that somehow got to this level because he because of the the way that his mannerisms, because he's so normal, I guess, and his teams definitely have, have, have not really played in his silky way. Down the years, but yeah, he was he was a good player, a very good player in a in a in a pretty good, uh, well, an excellent West Ham team. I, I guess Mike he, was he overshadowed by some sort of bigger names around him to some degree. Is that why he's not revered outside of Upton, you know, the West Ham fan community? Yeah, but I also think, and it's it's strange that you mention his persona as a manager. As a player, he he was quite an understated character. So he obviously had a lot of bile that he's got out <laughs> since. But, um, you know, I, I I think also if you look at, you know, a blue-collar club like West Ham or what West Ham were when they weren't a global brand, according to Baroness Brady, they attract certain types or, or players are embedded in the, the, the psyche of the fans, a certain type of player, in the way that someone like a Stuart Pearce probably w- would have fitted their blueprint Paul Chaplin comes up with another one aid, Billy Bonds. And as Paul said, he came off the pitch after every game, showered, declined to go drinking with the rest and went home to his family. I met him in person and this hero was humble and honest and didn't disappoint. Yeah. Yeah, again, uh, typical of the players of, of that era, really, in terms of didn't have that big, big ego, just normal, would probably go to a normal pub. And drink, drink. Well, he wouldn't drink with the fans, but but he would be that sort of that sort of guy that that wouldn't turn his nose up to a conversation with a supporter, even outside Upton Park. I, I I remember seeing him in person as a kid a few times when he was West Ham. He would have been really knocking on, I guess, into his into his mid to late thirties at the time. Might even have been player manager at, at, at the period that I'm thinking and. And even then, he, he he was a really strong player, someone that that stood out with his long longish hair, all action, and yeah, absolutely. I can see why why West Ham supporters love him to this to this day. He was he he gave his all for the badge, didn't he? And 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 as as Paul has pointed out, he he wasn't because look, if he was one that declined going drinking with the rest of the team, that that really did make him stand out from the crowd because. Because footballers of that of that era, that's what it was all about, really. <laughs> it was play hard, drink hard, you know, have fun, have fun. And if he resisted that temptation, look, that would that would go in part to to, to explaining why he had such a long career. Yeah, but also, you know, as Paul said, you know, he, he was eventually thrown under the bus by the club. Loyalty, I suppose, is a one way street in football, and we understand that, but. But surely players like or personalities like Billy Bonds deserve a bit better sometimes. Do you agree that, Seb? Yeah, I mean, I mean, unfortunately, with with West Ham, the comparison there was with the way they treated Bobby Moore after his retirement. Obviously, there's a, you know, there's a. I've never really understood that. I've never really understood why um, why better care wasn't taken of Bobby Moore, and I suppose you'd say the same thing with Billy Bonds. Got to be careful. I say there's there's a sort of a degree of Harry Redknapp's influence mixed up in there. We've mentioned Joey Beecham on this transfer on on this podcast before, and his botched transfer from Oxford was, uh, you know, wasn't you know particularly helpful. I mean, it kind of helped usher him out the door. 
I think it's very difficult because over time, like, you know, the club is the club, but it's very difficult as a supporter not to form attachments to individual parts of it. And so when a character like that leaves, part of you probably goes with them. And if the club is is seen to be kicking someone through the door or under the, or throwing them under the bus, then that's a very hard thing to bear as a fan. You know, particularly, I, mean, I think Billy Bond's made, what, 600-odd appearances for West Ham? Something like that. Bobby Moore is Bobby but, Moore. But, but, you know, managers, so, but, but when you go into football management... You know that that you know what you're getting yourself in for, and if if results aren't brilliant, he did go down. You now he promote, he, he he got West Ham back up, and then if the team, if the board feel that the team, there's a better manager out there, regardless of what you've done for that club, then I don't know. I, I feel like you, the club is duty bound to to make make a change. Maybe they went about it the wrong way. It's a long time ago. I can't remember the the nuts and bolts of it. But but yeah, in a way, I kind of wish Billy Bonds hadn't manage West Ham I, I, it's, it's funny because I like I, I completely agree with you if you become a manager you know what you're taking on but then I also think yeah you, there's a there's an obligation from the club to make sure that that process difficult as it is is handled as best as possible so the the other example from much further back would probably be Derek Dooley you know he, he lost a leg through injury and he became for a couple of years manager at Sheffield Wednesday and they sacked him, I think, either on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, something like that. Now, if people haven't heard of Derek Dooley, it's worth doing a little bit of reading into his backstory to kind of to to provide the context for, for who he was to those fans and sort of the overall story of his life. But that's another example where, where clubs sometimes make decisions which you think, can you not see what's going to happen as a result of it? Can you not see the PR issue that you're causing yourself? It's, it's strange. And, and I suppose Billy Bond's another one of those. It's it's hard, and no one's pretending otherwise. But it's one that sort of gets you know it gets done wrongly far more often than it probably should. Yeah, we're talking about allegiance here, now, and Dean Gripton suggests that Trevor Francis was his hero, and he gives this explanation. He said, "My dad, West Brom. My first game, West Brom. Mum's family, Villa." But he says, "I was fascinated by the teenage Trevor Francis." My first Blues game, 4-0, Trevor Francis the star. He's why I'm a Blues fan. I cheered his goal against Malmo for Forest. And he scored in Spain 82, which was my first England World Cup. And he managed the Blues so close to the glory in 2001. So there's someone whose life was almost lived through the football club. You know, the teenage prodigy went away, you know, became Cluffy's slipper carrier, won him a European <laughs> Cup, uh, and eventually ended up back at the club. It is funny, isn't it, how football can capture almost like the narrative of someone's life? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it is in that, in that regard. The uh, He's just that he was so good so young, wasn't he? And, and I guess, yeah, fans of a certain age would just fall in love with that player because they're so relatable at that young age and then just follow them follow them through for other clubs and, and for the national team as well. I think what's amazing about Trevor Francis' career is that is that he was sensate he got off to an absolute sensational start as a teenager. Just blew the socks off off the league and, and were, were scoring so many goals for someone so young. Yet he didn't fizzle out. He didn't fizzle out. He he he, he almost we didn't. I wouldn't say kicked on, but he enjoyed great success in terms of trophies with, with Nottingham Forest. Scored obviously a famous goal in the European Cup final. But he he went on to to play for a number of teams, and and, and he was he played for so long that he became a player manager, didn't he, at QPR and Sheffield Wednesday? So he's someone that that didn't burn out, and I think that's that that's something to celebrate. For, for Trevor Francis too, because as we see with someone like Michael Owen, that that love for the game can go, injuries can really really blight you. But he had great longevity, I think, Trevor Francis, and he, and he also, of course, was brave enough to to, to go into Serie A as well. And yeah, you know, I remember him pictured in that Sampdoria shirt as well. I think he he did he did pretty well over there for a striker. Hard for strikers to succeed in Italy, but I think he did okay there. Yeah, he is associated with Brian Clough. And I know, Seb, you know, you're particularly interested in, in Cloughy. Mark Jarrett said Roy McFarland 
A fantastic captain, centre-half for Derby, so skillful and could score goals as well. Sadly, injury curtailed his career. Tragic that he won only 28 England caps. What a pairing him and Colin Todd were. As he says, Cluffy thought he was the best player he'd managed. You know Cluffy quite well, uh, Seb. I know, That's some praise, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, I know the legends of Ron Clough quite well, and I just through other people's work. But I I think in, in Roy McFarlane, there's the, there's the kind of the precursor to the modern centre-half, which is quite interesting. Also, actually, on that Colin Todd point, I mean, I, I think they only played for England together once, which is what a waste that is. But the point I was going to make about this is, is I, I never saw Roy McFarlane play, but I think in him is also the seeds of the Nottingham Forest defence that Clough would later build, because... I think of Kenny Burns being transitioned from nastiest player in the league as a centre forward at Birmingham. <laughs> Honestly, just horrible. From every description you could ever read, just <laughs> someone you would never, ever want to play against. And yet was transitioned into, into central defence. Now, I've always thought that that was kind of, alongside Larry Lloyd, that was that was kind of Clough's attempt to to build himself a new Roy McFarland, which, of course, he would then go and win the, win the European Cup with twice, back to back. So, yeah, and I, I kind of, I mean... When Brian Clough says that about you, obviously it's high praise, but it's praise of a certain sort because of the way he wanted to play the game. And McFarlane, if, if he was to play today, in fact, he's probably one of those players that could play today in terms of, you know, not, maybe not the athleticism, but the, but the mentality, the I'm not just a stopper as a centre-half, I'm an actual footballer, which is, a, I don't know, it's a difference which, which didn't really become fashionable for many years afterwards, at least not in England. Yeah, talking of fashion... When I was a young kid growing up, my first football shirt was bought by my mum and she had no idea what, what club I supported and it was the Manchester City team that had won the league late 60s and it's one of those round collar numbers but she liked the colour <laughs> and being and being a practical mum also had a bit of gr growing room so I, you know, I, I sort of had about 18 months in it. That team, Vernon Grant, highlights one of the great players within that team as an early favourite he says rather than the greatest player I've ever seen Colin Bell until his career was ended by a brutal Martin Bucken tackle Nijinsky which is obviously his nickname was the best of that Man City side Allison agreed unlike many stars of the 60s a fit Colin Bell would be fine in today's game do you think he'd make that transition, Aid? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't. He wasn't a player of my era. He's a bit, a bit before my time. But I've seen clips and highlights and read read about him and what people say. And it, it, it appears he, he's one that would probably get into the City team today. And you probably couldn't say that about too many City players of uh, previous generations because the standard's gone up so so much, particularly in the last decade or so. But yeah, he was good enough potentially to get into into the current side. And, and one thing that really stood out for me for, for a midfield player was his, was his goal output. He statistically, I looked at it between 66 and, and 74, 75. So it's about nine seasons there, double figures, easily into double figures every single year, which I think, well, it tells you all you need to know about the type of player he was, but he wasn't just a goal scorer. I'm led to believe he's very, you know, quality, all-round player. I mean, you're probably better placed than, than us to to describe what he was like to watch, Mike. Yeah, well, the whole you know the the nickname probably gives it away. Nijinsky. There was there was there was a, a balletic quality to him, and I think probably he would be a player who could span the generations. There would be a there's a little bit of sort of you know almost like a David Silver a bit about him, you know. And it was a different football club in those days. I used to love going to Main Road. You know, because of you know the Kipax and 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 just it had that intensity that has been lost you know as it has been at so many clubs in, in going into these you know modern Lego stadiums. So yeah, he was a player of his time, but I think he would basically train on as it were. I think actually the suggestion of Craig Griffiths will basically hit a few chords with a lot of people. He basically says, "My hero, my dad." He took me to tons of stuff, but football was ours together. And I hope to pay it back to my son in the future. Do you identify with that? Yeah, I do. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you look up to your dad. I remember watching my dad. 
that's probably how I, why I did he, why did he play? I, yeah, my dad was a, he got to sort of senior amateur, sort of semi-pro level. He played for Leighton Orient reserves. That was about as high as it, high as he got. But he played for some really good non-league teams. But but by the time I was around, he was playing sort of good standard Saturday football, and and that is that is my first memory really of of watching football, sort of with a ball in at my feet you know, kicking around behind the goal while my dad was playing. And, and he was a he was a really tricky winger. He was quite he was quite small, 5'8", but he, he was really skillful and he, he would wind up defenders and he, he would, yeah, he would get clattered all over the place. <laughs> he was a very, very, very cheeky player, actually, in terms of he was like a really cheeky winger. And, and yeah, I looked up to him and, and, and I think that that, that may, must have had an influence on on the way I wanted to play because I ended up being a winger and, and someone that liked to take on, take on defenders. And, and then, and, and to be fair, my dad was, was a hero because he sacrificed his love of playing for, to help me, to help me make it because he, he was, a, he could have carried on playing. He was only in his thirties, early thirties, maybe even late twenties. No, he would have been, yeah, in his early thirties. And he just basically said, no, I, I, I'm going to take you here, there and everywhere. He was the manager of my kids team. We won everything. He got manager of the year, and then he was became my taxi driver. You know, to take me here, there, and everywhere. So, <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely can can relate to that. Yeah, and and look, if if any of my children ever, you know, need well, I'll always offer the same support. We'll have to wait and see what my two little ones whether they have that interest or not. We'll see. Yeah, my my dad was a rugby league man, and we used to go up to uh, the Lake District. He came from a, a place called Whitehaven which is on the coast there, an old fishing village, which is basically you know, a big mining area. We nagged him when he used to go up there on holidays to take us to Workington Town, Workington Reds as they are now. Yeah, that was basically, it was a, it was a cow shed, but it was a, it was a really, it, it was a, one of those games, one of those grounds which still live with you, you know. With you, Seb, where, where, was, where was your sort of familial interaction with football? I didn't really have one. I mean, I... I come from a slightly different place in that sort of I, I grew up between my parents and I to this day I have no idea where football came into it it was kind of it was passed on to me indirectly from other people's parents just because you know my my mum was a single mum bringing me up and you know I didn't see my dad all that often um and so I would do things like for instance I went to I went to my first Spurs game as part of somebody else's birthday Lost at home to Wimbledon because, you know, Spurs are Spurs, are Spurs you know. <laughs> but it was, I, I think actually in terms of sort of my my loyalty and my love for the game, and we, we touched on this in the last podcast, I, I fell in love with the, the game first, like playing the game, the, you know, cricket stumps for goalposts and jumpers and, you know, we'll make a goal out of that and a football out of this and we'll play with a size two in this, on this sort of, this tiny patch of grass with sort of nails in it and dogs running around and, and that kind of stuff. And then the kind of, I never had any ambition really to, to play football, certainly not in the way that Adrian did. I just love the sport. Even now, it's quite funny because I obviously give them what I do for a living. Like both my parents are gladly, you know, still, still with us and they'll read what I do, but without any knowledge whatsoever of the game. So every now and again, my mum will, will, um, will phone me up and talk about an article I've written and, and praise me, but praise me for strictly like the grammar or the, the paragraph <laughs> construction or, you know, she, she'll, she'll listen to podcasts and, 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 and stuff. And, and I, don't, I reckon 80% of the time she has absolutely no clue what's going on, but they've been very supportive, my mum especially, in, in terms of sort of, you know, go and do this and, and also pressure me in a kind of, right, well, go and do what you want to do rather than, you know, I come from private school, so obviously there's a kind of compulsion there to go into finance and law and, you know, medical studies, all that kind of stuff. But I never had any of that. I never had any pressure from either of them to, to do anything. But you love football, go and write about football. You know, I did a lot of things first for 10 years, but they were they were very encouraging in that direction. And, and kind of, I suppose that's the only equivalent I have in terms of it's a professional thing, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting yeah, well, we all form sort of, you know, uh, relationship, personal relationships in a professional setting, don't we? And I suppose we're going to end this with there are two votes for a player and a, a man I've come to know quite well, Neil Harris. I'll give the, the suggestions and then we can talk about 
but the issues that those suggestions raise. Nick Hart says, to have such a promising top flight career effectively taken away by cancer and then make a go of lower league football, plus to take on the minefield of football management and do so well, makes him a great example for sport and life itself. He's backed up by Paul Herbert. Paul says, watching him come back from cancer to play and score at Watford still makes the hair stand up. At 25, I was diagnosed with cancer myself and the knowledge he had beat it helped me get a positive mindset. So I suppose what we're talking about here, guys, is a role model in all senses of that phrase. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, Neil Harris... You can. It won't just be that person that sees sees him as an inspiration, Paul. There'll be hundreds, thousands potentially of others that have been through something similar, and they'll they'll look at, at Neil Harris and and how he overcame it, and and what he's since gone gone on to achieve, both on the pitch and and since off it as a as a very very proficient manager at championship level. So. Yeah, no, Neil Harris is is a real good guy. Definitely one of the good guys. I, I don't really know him, unfortunately. I feel like if I did know him, I, I'd 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 get on great with him. We'd be we'd be pals. But but yeah, I don't know. Him. I've sort of just looked on from afar and thought, no, he seems like a great lad. And and obviously, what he achieved in the game came from non-league. You know, Cambridge City, a city that I'm I'm familiar with. You know, I came from a place not too far away from Cambridge. You know, what he went on to achieve was great especially considering that, that his career was interrupted by by that illness and 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 I I do like I do like the cut of his jib as a manager. I do find that 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 a lot of people in football actually a lot of the people we discussed on this podcast funnily enough tasted non-league game. They were in the they were in the amateur ranks at one point or the, or the other often at the start. And from my experience Players that have experienced normal life outside of the pro bubble are more rounded as people. And I think that in the case of, of Neil Harris, he's, he's certainly a rounded person. Uh, and that's helped him go on to achieve what he has. Yeah, I suppose. And you, you, you touched on this issue earlier on, talking about Billy Bonds, funnily enough. And, and, you know, I might get shouted down for this, but I do see huge similarities between West Ham and Millwall as, as, as clubs, blue collar clubs the fact that when he was manager at Millwall you know and that was always going to happen you know I first knew him as the senior pro who was sent to suss me out when I spent the season there and um poor judge of character yeah oh terrible (laughs) terrible um but what struck me about him was that natural air of authority but he was also revered at that football club and you have to be a special character to to get that amount of loyalty you have to give everything of yourself and be seen to do so. But when he was manager, there was a certain point where I thought, oh, blimey, I just hope your legend doesn't be, isn't sullied by what's going on. And he, he, he got out at the right time, probably, and went on then to Cardiff very quickly. That whole thing of being a legend can be double-edged, can't it, Seb? Oh, absolutely, Mike. It's... Um... I mean, it's, it's it's not really comparable, but it was kind of with the hallmark of that early time with when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came to Manchester United. It complicates things. And I think that the reaction you've just described there is something that we, we can all relate to in that you, you kind of, the legend is more important. The preservation of the legend and the memory becomes more important. I just want to say something on, on what, um, what Adrian said and what we're talking about with Neil Harris in terms of what the listener said about drawing inspiration from someone who'd suffered something similar medically it's amazing isn't it like how often that rings true because it's there's really nothing as powerful as a sportsman or sportswoman who who encounters something and deals with it in an exemplary way i mean the obvious example um magic johnson with his hiv diagnosis i can't even begin to imagine what what that would have with what his example would have meant to people within the lgbt community but also in English football, like unfortunately, there were there were there was a slew of of cancer diagnosis, particularly testicular cancer. I remember Jeff Horsfield had it, and Stubbs had it, and I remember thinking, you know, Jeff Horsfield, I think, did a lot of campaigning, and and he was a real example of what could happen and how you could you could come back from something like that. And 
touch wood, I've never suffered anything like that. And, you know, nobody in my family has ever been touched by anything like that. But, you know, the, the, the good that these people can do, that's the heroic quality. Like that's the kind of, that's the thing that you want. I mean, no one wants to be suffering, of course, but to have the, the, the example set, the kind of the, the stoic, this is how I'll, I'll tackle this and, and overcome it. And it's um, John Hartson as well as, is another person who I think deserves to be mentioned. Bobby Robson, obviously, sadly, succumbed to cancer eventually, but, you know, it's tremendously brave. And the power is is amazing. And I think it's kind of, it can often be football at its very, very best, or sport at its very, very best, to be fair. Yeah, and, you know, I fully concur with that. Heroes, I suppose, don't have to be perfect specimens, do they? They're loved for their setbacks, sometimes their faults, certainly their foibles. And as you said, Seb, Paul's point about the inspiration Neil Harris provided in his own 10-year fight against cancer tells us everything we want to know about people who can lead by example. I really enjoyed this episode. We went through the heroes from A to Z and I just want to thank you for joining us and thank you for putting forward these players. I hope you've enjoyed it and please stay safe out there. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW.